this should be a time to build relationships and to learn experientially. I think two hours a day of online learning would be enough for any age. And then the rest really um, either has to be working on their own or working with parents. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Happy Friday. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't also start out by saying that this is a solemn day um, to be having an event, uh, but also an important day nonetheless. So welcome to our CER Back to School Action Series event. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. And with us today is the fabulous Erica Komazar, who's a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert. Erica, before we get to you, let me just take a few minutes to welcome our guests from across the country. I'm so happy that you are here in such a plentiful number. We have well over 100 people registered to participate today. And as we've done in the past 12 or so of our uh, action series events since COVID, and now this back to school series, we are here to try to help you navigate, and particularly parents, educators, policymakers, and all the other folks who make the world go round in education navigate uh, the important world of back to school and going to school, however that happens. And so while we all know many students have returned to classrooms in lots of different ways, being transformed by things we never dreamt of, masks and social distancing, others are navigating virtual learning and they're separated by friends and teachers. And so in the midst of this, we reached out to our colleague and friend, Erica Komazar, to help us uh, parse through what kinds of things we can be doing and thinking about in this um, very difficult environment. Um, if you've never joined us before, please use the Q&A to put your questions and your queries throughout the time. We'll get to them either at the end of our chat or through it as we can. Um, Erica Komazar, some of you may have looked up, is a graduate of Georgetown, Columbia Universities, and the New York Freudian Society. I want to know more about that later. And uh, brings amazing advice and counsel to uh, people dealing with parents uh, from schools to clinics to corporations. Her book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Mother in the First Three Years, love, love, love that. Um, uh, you can purchase on Amazon. It's not nearly as controversial as you think. She's been featured on all sorts of television. So in any event, with that, Erica, let me um, welcome you to our Back to School series webinar. Thank you, Jean, and thank you for having me, and thank everyone for participating today. And uh, we know you have many choices, so I appreciate it. Um, well uh, let, me, let me ask you to start by sharing with our audience about the struggles you're seeing in families as they face these unique challenges. And so let's get you talking to us a little bit more before maybe we take some questions that we've been curating from our parent rallies on Facebook and elsewhere. Well, this is a, a very difficult time for everyone. It's a time of a lot of loss. Um, because everybody's lost something. Um, you know, we've either lost loved ones um, in the worst case scenarios or 
uh, we've lost jobs or we've lost structure and routine to our lives that gave us sanity. Um, so everybody has had some had to deal with some kind of loss. And um, but I do want to mention that there's also a lot of gains for a lot of families with children. Um, you know, many parents are spending a great deal of time with their children. Uh, that is also a blessing that they may not have had um, prior to this event in history. So um, I, I want to say it's not all bad, but, but there is a great deal of stress um, in terms of the expectations on parents um, to both be working and be home with their children um, and to be educating their children. It's having to put on a hat that they never had to put on before, which is that of teacher. Um, and if, if this hasn't done anything else, it's helped us to understand how critical teachers are, how important education is, and to respect those professionals who spend six to eight hours a day with our children um, and how much they actually do and to see how hard it is what they do. Um, but I would say the pervasive thing that I'm seeing in my practice with parents is a lot of stress and worry and an increase in anxiety, both personally uh, as parents and also anxiety in children. Um, you know, so fear is normal. Uh, we all feel fear. So I just want to distinguish the difference between fear and anxiety. We all feel some fear right now. Um, but when fear becomes something that is preoccupying or starts to interfere with other aspects of life, um, and it starts to, again, become a preoccupation for us, then it becomes anxiety. So I would say pervasively it's stress on parents and children and anxiety. Yeah. Let me unmute myself. Um, you know, you and I had a conversation on my podcast, Reality Check, Erica, um, last year, and it was on the heels of your book, um, about Parenting, and about, you know, the advantages of parents being home in the first three years. And you got, you got pulled into some controversy there because a lot of the feminist community um, thought that you were suggesting that parents shouldn't um, shouldn't go to work, for example. Moms in particular shouldn't go to work. But you really were more talking about making it possible as a society for us to do both potentially from home. The reason I'm raising this now is I remember you talking about the advantage of attachment and your whole uh, work on attachment. And the beginning of your comments just now, you talked about the advantage of being home with your kids more. Can you talk a little bit about how Maybe while we're all seeing this, many of us as difficult for social emotional upbringing, we're hearing this from lots of people, there's maybe a, this silver lining that we can reattach because so many of us were by choice and some of us forced to leave the home earlier rather than be entrepreneurial and be able to work at home. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, Jean, you know, I write for the Wall Street Journal. So I wrote two pieces, one which was more controversial than the other. My first piece that I wrote, I mean, I've written a bunch of pieces about COVID, but the first piece that I wrote when this all happened was that there are advantages uh, in some families uh, to, for children and for parents, as you say, to repair um, absences that they either couldn't help or choices that they made to be away more. They were now spending much more time with their children and reattaching and repairing some of the earlier uh, issues of non-attaching. So, you know, there were a lot of advantages to young children in particular 
who were loving COVID. In fact, I think the piece was called something like, you know, children love COVID, um, young children, because they were getting, they were more content than ever. They were having their parents around. When they were in distress, their go-to people, which were their mothers and fathers, were there. Um, and so, but then I wrote another piece. And as you know, I'm no stranger to controversy about how what I was seeing with some of my patients was working from home was a very good thing for many women. Um, and I didn't say all women, but many women and men who were for the first time allowed to be home and work were finding that they could balance better their feelings of guilt and their concerns about not being present for their children. They were sort of around more. Well, I got a lot of pushback from that saying, you know, and a lot of anger, more anger than I've gotten from any piece, more anger than I got when the book came out. So much so that they had to shut down my Twitter account. Uh, for a day and clean it up from the hate mail and put it back up with the good stuff. Um, I didn't do that. Twitter did that. Um, so I think the idea is that people are feeling very sensitive about this idea of, should I feel grateful to have this time with my children? I'm really angry. I'm really stressed. How dare she say that this is a good thing, I'm miserable. Um, so you have really both sides. You have people that are feeling miserable and you have people that are feeling blissful um, and, and, and everything in between, yeah. Right, well, I know that I, uh, they probably wouldn't like me to say this, but I welcomed um, a couple of my adult children back in the home and felt like I was able to make up for some lost time. Uh, maybe that's my issue, not theirs, although I think um, we enjoyed it. But it is it is difficult if you're not used to it, if you can, if it's more distracting. And so with that, let me go to one of the questions on our parent rally discussion. Um, some of you know, and we're still welcoming parent comments and input. We really believe that parents should be driving the education of their children. And whether or not they choose, Erica, to put them in a traditional school setting, mm -hmm choose virtually or choose a private public charter, whatever it is, we think money should be following kids. Let's just start with that premise. And it should serve, education should serve what they think is best. Mm -hmm. Those options, I think, would make this process we've gone to a lot easier to handle because maybe parents would have been choosier, if you will, or allowed to make these choices and being hit by this kind of pandemic, this you know unprecedented thing in our lives, wouldn't have been so difficult. Um, so when Carrie asks this, I think you know it's important to keep in context that most parents have not had those options, even if many states do provide it. Carrie had this to say, this year they're expecting my kids to be online learning at least five hours a day. My kids miss socializing with other kids and it's affecting their mental health. The doctors all recommend less than an hour of screen time a day for kids. Now we are expecting them to sit there for hours. So Erica, what would you say to parents who are concerned about screen time? So, I mean, it depends on the age of the child. So the American Pediatric Association says that children under the age of two should have no screen time. And then after that, between one and two hours of screen time, depending on how young they are incrementally, you know, you could have up to two hours. And even with adolescents, they say not more than two hours. It's not realistic with adolescents, only two hours, but, but yeah, that's, that is the recommendation. I just want to put that out there. Um, so, you know, people who have homeschooled, and you know this, Jean, people who have homeschooled for years have not used so much screen time. 
Um, but they have used workbooks. They've, they've learned, they put a lot of effort into knowing how to educate their kids without the screen time. There's a little screen time. There's some lectures. There's some videos they watch. But for the most part, it's not screen time. I think the issue here is um, a lot of parents don't have a choice because they were not trained to homeschool. They may also, so the people at homeschool really have to be very present. I mean, homeschooling is, is learning to be a teacher as well as a parent. They do a lot of training, people who elect to homeschool, um, and they don't use a lot of screen time. The problem is the screen time in that um, I think it's too much. I think that if you're going to, everybody has to reduce their expectations. Let me just say that right off the bat, that anxiety comes from people having unrealistic expectations, unrealistic expectations of themselves, unrealistic expectations of their children, unrealistic expectations at this crisis time in history of how much their children are going to learn cognitively. I mean, for me, this should be a time to build relationships and to learn experientially. So do I think that the schools are doing the right thing? I'm going to be very straightforward. You know, I'm a very honest person. I think six hours on the computer is too much. I think two hours a day of online learning would be enough for any age. And then the rest really um, either has to be working on their own or working with parents. And that puts a lot of pressure on parents, but that is what I believe is best for children. Um, so no, I don't believe that six hours on a computer is good for children. So let me ask you this, and this is not one of the parent questions, but I am, have, am a parent. Um, I guess I'm a little bit concerned about the, the commentary in general about screen time from this standpoint, because I was that parent, by the way, before there was all these amazing you know, technological controls that bought every kind of lock software known to man, you know, to keep my kids off computers. And, um, and they still got on, right? But I see a lot of people now, I see a lot of kids, I see a lot of parents walking their kids in the street on their computer, I see children at restaurants on iPads as early as three. So maybe there is a group of parents out there that are concerned, but where's that concern after three o'clock in the afternoon? Because our kids, even poor kids, by the way, who 99% of them have a smartphone, according to the data, are constantly doing this. Yeah. So I agree with you. And I think we should think about is there a way to transform the process now and say, if they have to be online more now because of education, because maybe this is your world, right? Because you're the fourth or fifth or second grader and you wanna be in this environment, looking at the screen with all these people and that's your class, those are your friends if you're home. Um, again, not ideal, but then cut it off after that. Pull the iPad away, turn the television off. As you said, go out and play. Is that too simplistic, Erica? Well, so there is a difference between passively using technology and interacting with others. So, you know, we say that educational software, educational technology, interacting with friends online is very different than the old doing Pac-Man or even social media. I mean, you know, um, the idea of either learning or interacting with others is, is very different. So, you know, what, what we talk about when we talk about screen time is usually passive screen time, right? Watching television is passive screen time. So that's why we really don't want to, you know, have our children sit in front of TV for hours and hours and hours. Um, having said that, 
a lot of kids grew up on Sesame Street, which was educational television. So, you know, I try not to condemn anything and condemn parents. I would say that, you know, the, the idea is children need human interaction. That's really the issue. Children need human interaction. By the way, that human interaction doesn't need to be, so I'm going to cover all bases here. It doesn't need to be going to school in person now. Um, and, I, and I leave this open because it's a very, it, you know, it's, it's somewhat of an individual decision. A lot of schools are giving parents choices. You can either have your children home if you're really scared, or you can send them to school if you're not. You know, they're right. giving parents choices. And, and so I try not to judge and say the most important thing here is that parents are not over the top anxious with their children because that is going to trickle down to their children. Right. So if we want our children to be healthy, this workshop is about raising children to be healthy in a social, emotional way and mentally, you know, you you can't bring that anxiety to your children. So sending your child into a classroom right now is going to make you feel more fearful and anxious then you need to keep them home. But keeping them home means that you need to have more interaction with them because they need human social emotional development doesn't necessarily just mean with other children, particularly young children, it's with human beings. It's with you as their caregiver. You know, if you can't do that because you work, then your partner, if your partner can't do that, then you need to hire a babysitter to come in and have, they need interaction or you need to create what I call safe, COVID circles, social circles for your children. So right. because the child is staying home now, Jean, doesn't mean they can't be healthy. You can create a social circle for them outside of school hours. So let's say in my ideal world, there was no more than two to three hours a day of screen time for children who are learning. And then the rest of the day would be, you have to create a social circle with other families you trust and get two or three children together to play because in truth children need playtime social emotional development is more about playtime particularly with young children than it is about sitting in a classroom all the time and being um you know learning cognitively yeah. but they also get them together to do three and four kids around a table absolutely to do work together so maybe they could do so there are there's play and then there's sort of concrete let's build something or let's create a project absolutely, I mean, absolutely. This is an opportunity to kind of challenge that. And in fact, we hear a lot from parents who are working. I've had conversations. I mean, many of us have, but those of us who are working nonstop at our computers. So this, I can't speak for everybody out there, but the Center for Education Reform, our entire team, which is around the country, we wake up this way, we go to bed this way and in between. And I'll tell you what, we've been on the phone with thousands of people across these last several months. And I have no problem watching a kid run across the screen, right? I have no problem saying, sorry, someone's in the, you know, you're, they've got someone in the background. They're like, shh. And they're telling their kids to shush. I'm like, no, no, do it for shush. I had to shush my kids when I was little. It was unacceptable for a mother to be on the phone with kids in the background having a serious conversation. You guys out there are so lucky today. You can say like, here's my child. She's sitting right here. Or, hey, by the way, Joey, go back to your math. Or let's go outside for a minute. And so... I think you're right that they like the anxiety that I see in people's faces. I'll never forget talking to a CNN reporter and she was like closed up in her, in her computer, in her attic. And she was like, I'm sorry, there's noise in the background. I was like, don't apologize. That's awesome. This is life. And by the way, this was life like a hundred years ago. 
That's right. When did life get so compartmentalized? When did life, when did we all become so specialized and compartmentalized that we couldn't see life as a kind of holistic thing? Life is children, life is animals, life is work, life is love, life is relationships. And, and I think, yeah, we're all getting a good dose of how we can't, we can no longer compartmentalize our lives, um, you know, kind of sending children away so we could work. I mean, right. we now have to learn to work with our children around and not feel self-conscious about it and make our colleagues also less self-conscious about it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, one of the other questions is about really managing your kids at home, your students at home on two days or three days or whatever it is and trying to get them to meet the goals. I suspect you're going to talk again a little bit about it, the anxiety in it, but are there concrete ways? Um, again, this is new for a lot of people. Are there concrete ways to make sure that people and our students and our children sit and focus, are there certain numbers of minutes that we should expect? And again, I realize that schools out there might be telling parents something different. And we should get to what you do if that's the case, because parents do need to be empowered. But if you're just like your job is to get them to finish their math lesson or to read something or to complete something and they've got ants in their pants, are there some tools and tricks you can share yeah, so I guess you could use a little bit of a formula. It's not a perfect formula, but um, take the age of the child and triple the minutes. And that's as long as they can sit. Wow. That's it. And in fact, really progressive schools understand this. So they will give the kids a break to move their bodies or stop doing what they're doing, you know, in terms of, learning, reading, and writing, and arithmetic, and they'll get them to play, to, to move their bodies, to do recess. So yeah, I mean, depending on the age of the child, I think our expectations are really out of whack. And that's why we're all anxious right now, is, you know, um, there is an art to being able to accept our own limitations and the limitations of our situation and the limitations of our children, um, and also to be in the present, you know, to be able to be in the present with our children and not be so preoccupied with what's going to happen in a year from now when their um, cognitive development isn't up to par. I mean, everyone's in the same boat. And so children who are living through this year are going to have other skills and strengths that they might not have had. And they might have some more cognitive deficits, which they will catch up with. Um, you know, I can promise every parent here that this year, if you focus on social emotional development and relationships and relationship building with your children, they will gain much more than they will lose in terms of their cognitive abilities. That doesn't mean you just drop the ball and do nothing in terms of the reading of a certain age and the writing and the arithmetic. But I think the expectations really have to be softened here. I think we're all very harsh and anxiety comes from internal harshness. That's where it comes from. So we have to be less harsh with ourselves. We have to be less harsh with our children and, and be more easygoing about this, which is really hard for a lot of people. Well, and let's talk about also the contrast, if you will. And thanks you folks for keep bringing those Q&A together. By the way, I have people working on lawns and stuff in my neighborhood. And so that's coming through where I live, right? It's where you- It's okay. <laughs> 
parking or traffic, whatever. Um, but the contrast, and, and again, I love the, the, the collaboration, if you will, between sort of education and psychology. And, and what you said about, it's actually not normal for students to be sitting all day anyway. We have to also use this as a reminder, and I think this is a wake-up call for many parents, that COVID has revealed the deficiencies of a system where our students go into schools. In most cases, not all, they're sitting in a direct construction way. And by the way, that works for lots and lots of kids, but there aren't frequent breaks. And so you talk about anxiety. We're sending students to school the same way in most cases that we did 150 years ago. And yet their assessments and their achievement isn't dramatically different year to year. In fact, even kids from advantaged homes, their proficiency in math and reading and history and what they know for science is stagnant, if not declining. By the way, it pales in comparison to an awful lot of other countries. So these are all problems that we have. So using this as an opportunity to craft what school should look like for students is, is probably not an unreasonable expectation, right? Not at all. I mean, I have older children. Um, I have a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. So I have told my own children, I've taught them that um, when you are working, doing your schoolwork, that you need to take breaks. It's very important to be able to take breaks. And when your mind starts to wander or you feel fidgety or agitated or stressed, that's not a moment to push through. It's a moment to listen to you. So stress is a bodily experience and it's actually a neurological experience. We experience stress in our brains. So distractibility is when we're stressed, right? It's called hypervigilance in the brain. So when a child feels that, they actually need to not push through or power through, like Hillary Clinton said, but actually to pull back and actually take a break. And they need tactile comfort. They might need a hug. They might need food. They might need to wiggle their bodies around and jump around. They might need to do um, sprints and do some running in the yard. But it's not a time. To, so we are learning something. Yeah. That um, and hopefully we're learning something, which is that children can't just sit for hours and hours and hours. And in public schools, children are forced to sit for very long periods of time. Maybe we're learning something from this COVID, which is that when children are agitated or distracted, it means that they need to pull back and refuel so they can then again engage. Okay. Uh, and if we pay attention to that at home, rather than getting angry at our children, getting impatient with them, um, they'll teach us. Children teach you what they need. Okay. So a couple of questions that are coming in from the audience here. For parents, is it better for them to lighten the ed load of their kids or try to keep it as it was? And the same person I just want to add did share a concern earlier about spikes potentially in child abuse. And, and you hear that written about, and I want to know if there's any, you know, what's the evidence of that? So there was a spike in domestic abuse uh, initially with COVID um, and also here and in South Africa, very, very bad, um, which they, in the beginning, they attributed, funny enough, because I wrote another piece on alcohol, they attributed to people who are used to mm. um, drinking and alcohol um, 
uh, and couldn't get access to it or had less access to it during COVID. Wow. You're actually falling into this domestic abuse pattern. Um, there has been some increase. I think the idea is, and this is where I'm going to be a little bit um, liberal about it. Whatever reduces your stress as a parent, if you have a choice to keep your child home because the idea of your child going to school makes you very fearful and anxious, then keep them home. Nothing terrible is going to happen to your child if they stay home. There was an article I got so angry about, and I won't use the author's name. It was in a major publication, major newspaper, about how if children didn't go to school in person, it was going to destroy them social emotionally. I got so angry because social emotional development isn't just found in school. It's found with your parents. It's found with your siblings. It's found with your friends if you create a COVID social circle. Okay. If you are too anxious to have your children home because you're stressed about work or you have to go to work, not everybody can stay home. Some people have jobs where they have to go, right? then do send your child to school if it reduces stress. So the domestic abuse may be parents, as you said, Jean, earlier, who don't have choices. What, and what about, yeah, and what about those? And we have somebody else asking, which a lot of us have, what about those who do have to go to jobs, multiple right. jobs? And so my point is then we have to have the schools open for those people because it's going to reduce their stress. Right. I, I do want to add something, though, which is this is a very deeply psychological piece that no one is talking about, um, which is that if we send our children to school in person, there is a risk, as we know, that they will bring COVID home to us. And if they bring COVID home to us, they could contract COVID, but we could also contract COVID. Okay, that has to be a consideration. And when I say that, you also have to be prepared for the feelings that your child will have if they know that they gave you COVID and you get very ill. Children are very sensitive. Um, and if they feel any culpability or guilt in our illness or impending death of a loved one, then um, that can do some serious emotional damage to that child. So I do have to add that because we're not talking about that. That sending children to school does come with the implication that they could get COVID, they could bring it home to us, and then that child could feel guilty about giving it to us. So you at least have to be psychologically prepared to deal with that with your child, which is to say, honey, if you get COVID and I get COVID, you know, it, it's okay. It's not anybody's fault. So, you know, we have to talk about that because that is an inevitability. Yeah. And, and you know, again, your, your, your point earlier about finding safe social circles. Yeah. Education circles. There, we, we had a webinar a couple of weeks ago, and if any of you want to see it, it's on our website at edreform.com about what parents want. And we had three parent leaders who run different groups around the country. Most of them work a lot with low income black and brown families who yeah. don't have lots of choices. And and they said repeatedly that their parents and their parent members are creating their own micro schools and pods. Um, Carrie Rodriguez of the National Parents Union, who's phenomenal, talked about how basically the pandemic pod that everybody thinks is really new is basically called, you know, you're going over to grandma's or aunt, you know, Josie's or whatever the Hispanic name she used for that, right? And I'm laughing because it really was and still is for many parents that way. And so some of us are very, very deeply concerned, and we should be, 
about the parents who have to go work or low-income parents, but what we're not as concerned about, and we should be, which is why we're doing this webinar and others, is demanding that parents get the resources to create those very environments, right? And so every state out there has gotten federal money, for example, and has state money that they can spend and send to parents if they choose, and they'll get more federal money. And so part of this has to be parents not only advocating and learning what best to do for their kids, and I know everyone's eyes glaze over on policy issues, but if you are not actively engaged in demanding that people in your community, your schools, if they can or won't open, that your state gives you money to follow kids, fund the family, there are lots of campaigns going about this right now. This is how you help overcome, right? Um, that that issue. And Carrie Rodriguez said Tia Maria, not Aunt Josie. But anyway, you find Tia Maria, Aunt Josie, or someone to help you with your kids, and you combine kids together, but let's give them the resources to hire tutors or do anything they can. Well, the other thing is, what, what do they do in the developing world? And I do a lot of traveling, and I, one of the things I do is try to observe mothers and children and fathers and children in other parts of the world when I travel. I write about it, and I think you know, the thing that is noticeable is there much better cooperation in other parts of the world than we are. Uh, I should say than we are in the Western world, not just America, the Western world that includes Europe too, right? So, um, and by cooperation, I mean exactly what you just talked about, you know, families working together. If you have to go to a job because your job demands that you are there, then having a, a, a a circle of trust of families, maybe three families, uh, where you can take turns going to your job, you know, um, and because you have to work. Maybe you, you know, you work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and your friend or your neighbor works Tuesday and Thursday, and you trust them. And that adult is present for all of the children so they can answer questions while they're in school. And on the days that you're, that you're not working, you're present. And those kind of cooperative agreements are, are very common. I mean, in the developing parts of the country, the world that I've been to, you know, if a mother needs to go out into the fields, she has two other mothers that she relies on and they alternate going out into the fields. I, it's Monday, I'm going to the fields today. You're watching my children. Tomorrow's Tuesday, I'm watching your children. You're going out into the fields. We don't do that well in this country because we're so individualistic. We're so socially isolated. No, everybody's so damn independent that no one wants to lean on anybody else. Uh, we have to lean on other people now, particularly if we have to go out to work. Um, it's going to require creating cooperative circles. Yeah, and we want to be so, uh, we, God forbid, we tell somebody we need help or a, cup of, or a cup of sugar. And that's what we do have to overcome. That is, that is our MO we have become as parents in many, many communities. Yeah. Eric, talk about kind of consistency and structure. Mm -hmm. um, it, are those things still important? Should parents in whatever situation they're in today be waking up and have the same schedule every day that they're keeping students on? Should they mix it up? Is there one better than the other for this? So, yes, the answer is, you know, COVID has sort of messed things up a little in terms of routines and structures that we were used to. So that means we have to keep as many of the old ones as we can and maybe create some new ones. You know, uh, as my 16-year-old daughter woke up, uh, her first class wasn't until 8.30 and she could wake up at 8.10 
and have a muffin and then say, wow, this is awesome. I don't have to get dressed or take a shower or anything. I'm just going to class. Um, there are some new routines, but, um, but yes, routine is important. So what does that mean? Sleep, going to sleep at a decent hour, you know, remembering that we're in school or we have to go to work and really, you know, not staying up till two in the morning, feeling like every day is a weekend, um, having a sleep schedule, eating at the same time, it keeps, it keeps our sanity as adults. And for children, it's very important. So routines and rituals and structure, some structure is important. What I will say is we don't want structure to ever be rigid. So think about um, an oak tree versus a willow, right? When the storm comes, the willow bends. The oak tree, when it, a big strong hurricane comes, it breaks, right? So we want our structure to be somewhat flexible, but we still need the structure. And, and every parent out there obviously will get frustrated, some of us more often than not. Um, one of the things I was wondering about, and I recently ex experienced this personally in my neighborhood, is hearing a parent complaining in front of her daughter about all the things she had to do to make sure her IEP was met, even though they weren't going back to school the same way. And I was kind of shocked the way she was talking about it, like, oh my gosh, they won't respond. And what am I supposed to do? And she's, how is she going to get the support? And I wonder if that has a bad effect on kids. It absolutely does. Again, if your expectations have not been softened during this COVID, um, then yes, that's going to cause anxiety. So we, we have to really soften our expectations and stop being perfectionists, you know, there's a lot of perfectionists walking around with a lot of anxiety and those that are kind of dealing with things as they happen, as they come. Um, you know, one of the things I'm telling people is to slow down, that this is an opportunity to slow down. And that means slowing down in terms of, you know, what, what kind of treadmill or race are we on? Who are we competitive with? And so slowing down can mean slowing down in terms of competition it can be slowing down in terms of actually our daily activities, really appreciating just mundane activities with our children rather than focusing on, you know, advanced cognitive abilities and keeping up with the Joneses and making sure that they're on track. Really, I, I mean, I'm going to be very extreme and say, you know, folding laundry with your children, baking bread with your children. Do you know that yeast went off the shelves when people started baking bread again? I always baked bread, but people started baking bread again. And just the idea of baking bread with your children. Right. Um, you sure. know, making ice cream with an ice cream maker or making cookies or the mundane tasks of life. Um, and actually, they can be very calming to really engage in those mundane tasks. But yes, those parents who are very perfectionistic, very focused on advancing their children's academic careers right now are, are really not doing themselves favors or their children. Um, what's going to help children now is a very relaxed approach to achievement right now. Um, and, and there are many states who are beginning to say, DC was one of them today, Maryland has said it, even California, which has kind of been closed for business to everyone, every kind of school, public, private, or charter, has said we will start allowing small groups. And so my thought, again, is we want to empower parents to not just control their home, but yeah. if you're 
worried about what you're going through right now, you have to realize, we say to parents, we're saying to all of you out there, you have to realize that you have to demand and ask for things and not wait for school systems or school or local officials to give them to you. And so if you can go access your local community center or church, or if you can offer to host eight people someplace, you should be doing that because you cannot wait for them to come to you. It never happens. It's not how we get change. Change in education happens when individual citizens rock the status quo. And we're seeing that more and more. Again, these pandemic pods, these groups of parents getting together to educate, micro schools, some governors giving money, and anyone out there who wants information about that can certainly reach out to us. Erica, what ways can schools, uh, this is another question from the field here today, what, what way can schools provide support to parents and students who have COVID-19? Yeah, so again, it depends on the resources of the schools, right? Um, I, I think some schools have more resources than others. That would be unrealistic for us to say that all schools are equal in terms of the resources they have. Some kids go to public schools, some kids go to private schools. Um, obviously, the more resources a school has, the more they can be generous with families. Um, but the idea is, the ideal is that, that schools care about their students and, and reach out personally to students and, and, you know, that there's some funding for this because, you know, not only are families who are going through COVID dealing with physical challenges, they're also dealing with the fear and the anxiety and all the emotional challenges of COVID. Um, you know, I, again, my, my thinking is that we want to expect less from children and families right now in terms of academic advancement. Um, and so what the schools could be doing is helping parents to understand that what's most important now is being with your children emotionally and physically as much as possible and experiential learning, creative learning. You know, if you're doing, um, you know, if, if a child is not well, you know, showing them educational videos and sitting with them on their bed and watching those educational videos. Um, as the child starts to get better, making, um, yeah, making a volcano in, in order to learn from science or making uh, indigenous peoples kind of campground or, you know, experiential learning. But I think the schools could do a lot in terms of calming people's anxieties and saying, we're not expecting that your children are going to be at the same level right now. What we're expecting is that you can be as present emotionally and physically as possible and make sure your children are mentally healthy at the end of this and they will catch up. That is the message that schools should be giving families right now. Right, right. And so there's a push-pull. There's kind of calm down, lower your, lower your expectations, use the time you can to, to create those attachments, to do experiential learning. I was sorry to be interrupting, but I'm like, reading, reading. No one sees anyone reading books anymore. There are books everywhere. Reading. reading. I mean, there, there are little libraries in people's communities. There are neighbors have books. There are books. There's newspapers. There's all sorts of stuff. So reading is also essential. But that's, the, that's kind of the, the push. And the pull is, again, saying to local school officials, I need help. Somebody in my family has COVID or whatever it is. We had earlier in the season, Patricia Brantley, the CEO of Friendship Public Charter Schools from Washington, D.C., was one of our 
many examples of schools that right after COVID shifted to deliver resources directly to families. They went door to door. They did a, a check on who had technology, what kind of programs or resources they might need in. And one of the things she pointed out that I completely forgotten about is as schools closed, that means there's a whole bunch of people getting paid that don't have a job. The janitors don't have a job, but they're getting paid. The social workers, the school nurses, yeah. the support services, the curriculum specialists, ladies and gentlemen out there, there are 19 to one administrators to kids in our traditional public school systems. Those folks could be checking in on all of our students by Zoom, by phone call, some might be comfortable doing in person, maybe they can be offering to help. So these also are kind of tools um, that they that they want, um, you should want to demand. Well, there's also a whole community of older people who are looking for meaningful work and their home and um, kind of engaging them in doing voluntary tutoring to children, particularly of you know, socioeconomic backgrounds where they can't afford these fancy tutors. I mean, I have a colleague um, who started a tutoring company and she's been trying to engage the public schools in, in the city and engage the mayor's office. No one's returning her calls because they have all these fancy clients, but she wants to volunteer the, the tutoring company's time to tutor the kids who are less advantaged, who are falling behind. and she hasn't gotten any response. So engaging the tutoring companies to ask them if they would volunteer some of their hours, you know, reaching out to the elderly community who, who are not working in a retired community, who sometimes tutor anyway in their churches and, and, and local schools, and asking them if they'll do hours with kids online to help help them, particularly with parents who are feeling overwhelmed. I mean, you know, the problem is there's no central force with this. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are all great ideas. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's organizing them. But yeah. It, it is definitely organizing them. And if, all, if you all don't mind, I'm just going to share really quickly. One of the resources the Center for Education Reform has created is our essential education database. And there are actually free tutors in here that are being offered to people live. And so this is broken down by early education, there's video games, there's math, there's things that people will send you, by the way, it's not just online. Um, there's charter resources, online education, you can do a tutorial in Why America, many, many things that exist here and elsewhere. And you can even just search it um, by topic. We don't necessarily have, and there's a lot of things in here. So we don't necessarily have um, all the psychological, but there are some social emotional, and of course you'll have uh, Erica's and other contact information for you. But I just wanted to share that as well as um, urge you all to go to our COVID action series area, read about the policy changes, read about what's needed. And then, and then finally, and I will um, stop doing my little show and tell, finally our parent power index is coming out next week and it tells you what states create, what kinds of power and what you should be asking for. So, so Eric, on that note, another question from the audience uh, as we get, begin to wind down, saying it's good to slow down, but the school expectations are a lot, right? And if parents don't follow through, their children fail and it affects their self-worth. So she wants your advice on this, but let me also add a layer. Um, I have a lot of teachers in my family. Some of them are right now teaching from their homes. Some of them are teaching at schools. And um, the demands on the teachers are very high. Like make sure that, you know, 
um, Miguel signs on uh, every day or call the parent if they're not. So there is this pressure on parents because the schools are getting pressure. So what do they do in that sense? Well, I think if parents cannot be competitive with other parents and say, you know what, if, you know, if my child isn't up to sort of the academic expectations of that school, they'll repeat the year next year when we all have a vaccine um, or, you know, squeaky wheel. Uh, parents have to be the squeaky wheel. They have to advocate for themselves. You know, if you are quiet, if you're compliant, if you're passive as a parent, uh, you will not be heard. You have to be the squeaky wheel. Um, and you have to be more knowledgeable about your child's emotional well-being and who your child is as an individual, because each child is an individual and they need different things. Some children are needing a lot of emotional comfort right now, and they need to be home with their parents. And that's far more important than going to a school and wearing this. The other thing we didn't talk about, Jean, which I have to mention is empathically, I would like every parent that's listening to me right now to imagine what it's like to sit with a mask on for six to seven hours a day in school. And maybe those of you who are nurses and doctors and in medical fields uh, have been doing that, but most people have not been doing that. Most adults have not. So what we're expecting of our children and our teachers is more than we're expecting of ourselves. So just a little empathy there. Um, and wearing a mask for six hours can make you feel very claustrophobic and paranoid. So the idea is as parents, we need to advocate. You need to go to your school. You need to say, this isn't right. This doesn't feel right. Your pressure when my child is sensitive and what my child needs now is to really have more balance in their life. So, you know, we will do three hours a day online, but then we're going to spend the rest of the day doing experiential learning or letting my child play, which is the release for anxiety. You have to advocate for your own individual family and your own individual child. And, and on that note, let me just ask you um, to talk about the parent versus school. I, I get the impression, we, we all do very often, that parents are so conditioned, we all are, into thinking that school is superior to the experience you can have at home, that we can't possibly teach our kids, that there's somebody out there, by the way, most math teachers are not qualified to teach math, but that there's somebody out there and they figure this out and school is the be all and end all. And we love school. We're in the education business. We want kids to learn. But it, but parents can do that, right? I mean, are, I think even the even the most efficient parent can have the biggest influence on their child. I mean, so again, I don't know. It might be on your website, and I'm hoping it is. But the whole, you know, because of the book I wrote, um, and it didn't. My, the, as you say, the book I wrote didn't say you couldn't work. But but the book I wrote said prioritize your children in the first three years in terms of their brain development. But you know who ended up following me is a lot of the homeschooling community ended up following me just by nature of what I said. And, um, and they have been believing what you believe all these years, which is there's, you know, teachers are critical, but parents can also learn how to take the time to learn how to be uh, teachers to their children. And, and, you know, again, I'm a real advocate of um, experiential learning. I'm a real advocate of making learning fun. If you don't make learning fun, whether your kid is three years old or 16 years old, you have no chance of that kid feeling that learning is a thing for life. 
not just a thing to get a good grade on a test, but learning is for life, right? And so it's, you've got to integrate play with learning always. It doesn't matter what age your child is. So that's experiential learning. And that's something parents do, a lot of parents do intuitively and naturally. So yes, parents can learn to do this stuff. And, and you can be doing that, again, to the extent that we get back on buses and subways. You can be doing that. I remember years ago, going back and forth on our metro every day to work, and I'd look at parents with kids not talking to them. And I wanted to create a, a business card and start handing it out, but I didn't have the nerve that said, just talk to your children and just start handing it out. Because even if you have nothing to talk about, like look at the color of that shoe. Look at the window. How fast are we going? That's experiential learning. I think a lot of people think project-based and experiential is something complicated and you got to go out and buy a bunch of things. It's the questions that come from living life. So if you're outside walking and you see a bird and you say, let's look up that bird and see what kind of bird that is and what their bird call sounds like and how many eggs they lay. And biology is all around you. Math is all around you. If you get magnetiles and you sit on the floor with your child and you build, um, every magnetile is a geometric, a geometric dimension and you can use it as a math problem. Um, I mean, everything around us has the ability to learn in it. Um, so yeah, and reading. I mean, the ability to read and be read to is how we, we learn to read by being read to. I mean, that the research shows. Um, as much as we learn reading by learning letters in school, we learn by being read to. So yeah, it's all around us. And the social emotional piece can, can be caught, if you will, or we can improve their social emotional well-being by being that parent you're talking about just as much, frankly, if not more, um, and most of the time more than a school can. Because the reason, um, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, that social emotional learning has become such a big deal in school is because we're not doing it well at home. That's right. I mean, I think that, as I said, I want to be very broad with this. If children feel you resent them, um, they feel your impatience and your intolerance and your resentment. It is true that um, it probably would be better for your children to go to school in person and have a tolerant, patient teacher teach them. But if you feel you have the inner resources and or resources, um, and I'm gonna say just because you feel impatient and angry and resentful towards your children doesn't mean you can't also get help with that. Um, so, you know, I encourage people just like educational uh, resources are out there, so are therapeutic resources. Um, there's a lot of free therapy right now. There's a lot of therapy online that's very inexpensive. Um, getting help with your angry feelings towards your children will help you to overcome that hurdle so then you can be more available to your children. Um, you know, some people focus on the real. If we just can get our children back to school, if that helps you as a parent to be a better parent, be more patient, more tolerant, I have no problem with that. The issue now is for, as parents, for all of us to reduce our anxiety so we don't pass it on to our children. Those are fantastic words to leave everybody with today. Erica Komazar, thank you so much for joining us on this all-important back-to-school uh, webinar for parents and teachers and, and, and interested uh, citizens and neighbors. Uh, we thank you for doing the work you're doing. We encourage everyone out there. We will have links on our website and Facebook 
Uh, so you can find Erica and her books and her work. Again, encourage you to find resources. And please do remember, when we say parent power, it's because we really do believe and know through the evidence that parents can, in fact, drive the education of their children. They are constitutionally protected in doing so. Um, and, and you need to just recognize that you can get through this. And so we're so grateful for um, your encouraging words of wisdom. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.